Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Legislation and rhetoric about queer people has been a huge talking point recently in government, school board meetings, and public discourse. Since the passage of several bills limiting access to gender-affirming care, the majority of conversations happening in mainstream media have been led by folks who are trying to make sense of what they're hearing, defining words they are just recently learning, and examining the realities queer people face. But the conversations often lack the context of lived experiences and perspectives because those facilitating those discussions are not, themselves, queer or trans. Producer Maya Norfleet sat down to talk with Luca Kai, the executive director of the St. Louis Queer Support Helpline, also known as Squish, and a person who can speak personally to what it means to be queer. They discuss the origins of the helpline, starting with its name, and how the nonprofit has learned and grown to support queer folks. They also discussed what Luca thinks of the hypervisibility of queer people in this moment of anti-trans legislation, policymaking, and violence. For more, here's Maya Norfleet. Do you pronounce it squish? Because I always say squish when I see it. Yeah, it is squish. Okay. And uh, squish, I think, hopes to give people the sense of a warm hug. And it's also a term used in the aromantic community and asexual communities to mean a queer platonic crush. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So tell me the history behind Squish the mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. Like when was it founded and what purpose does it serve? Mm-hmm. So Squish the St. Louis Queer Support Helpline is a grassroots community-based organization founded in 2019. Um, I founded it with Riot, my co-founder, and a couple of different other community members because we really saw the need for greater peer support networks um, and to address the health disparities that the St. Louis Queer LGBTQI community was facing. There was a whole range of disparities from housing to food to financial to social emotional health and mental health. Um, and we felt like even though we couldn't tackle all of these dis- disparities, we know they're all interconnected and produced by interconnecting systems of oppression. And our main goal was to build power for our community, so creating stronger networks of community care, building capacity to tackle big systems, and to help build stronger relationships within the community. And even within the name queer, because I know certain like generations have a different Mm -hmm. relationship with that word. Mm -hmm. So like real briefly, like Mm -hmm. what when when Squish uses queer, Mm -hmm. what does queer mean? Yeah, great question. So our understanding of the word queer has also evolved over time. So it's really interesting. we started out using queer as meaning anything that is counter to the heterosexual or cisgender majority. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual, aromantic, polyamorous people, um, you know, anyone who practices a form of gender, sexuality, or relationship structure that is counter to the dominant forms that we see in society, mm. um, we would say queer. But as we learn more about the history of queer, we learn two things. One is that, yes, it has often been used uh, as a slur to target people who are different, um, just like other slurs that are used against the queer community um, that is being reclaimed uh, by queer liberation movements, not just in the U.S., but internationally. Okay. 
But at the same time, there's this myth, I think, that queer is a new thing. Uh, it's mm. like young people are using it these days. Older LGBTQ people don't like it. They prefer LGBT. Um, but actually, we know that queer has been used by organizers and activists um, for many years uh, to mean something that is anti-oppressive and that is liberatory. So anything that is meant to, and you, you know, so some people say like being black is queer or being mm. disabled is queer. And what they don't mean to conflate these terms, but rather they mean um, to stand up for and be visible about creating liberatory practices is queer. Um, and so LGBT is not the same as queer because, you know, they're LGBT people who are not safe for um, marginalized people. There are people who don't have a queer anti-oppressive pol- politics, even though identity-wise they're in the community. I see. So queer is also a politic, and I think that um, has become more powerful but also has been watered down over time. And so when when Squish mm-hmm. first started with the with the support helpline, mm-hmm. what type of phone calls mm-hmm. were y'all getting? What were the the things that people were asking f- mm-hmm. help around? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So when we first started, we were so much smaller. We yeah. were very unknown. Not many people knew about us. So when you say smaller, though, how mm-hmm. much smaller? So we started out with an annual budget of about $5,000, and we had about 15 volunteers. So now okay. our annual budget is more in the range of 150000 uh, and we have around 60 volunteers. Wow. So, okay, so, so much smaller. <laughs> much smaller, very <laughs> grassroots, very volunteer-run, a lot of burnout, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the calls we got range from um, mental health resources, housing insecurity, people looking for stronger relationships, people wanting to talk to difficult situations they're in, people feeling lonely and isolated, mm. especially when the pandemic first hit and ongoingly. And I think people get surprised when I tell them this, but actually the calls we get now are still very similar. They're mm. still about relationships, connection, mental health, lack of community, um, not being able to participate fully in, in communal life, and also housing is a big challenge, especially for our trans callers. And so when it comes then to mm. just like the scale, mm-hmm. and now, of course, like the budget, mm-hmm. annual budget has grown, the number of volunteers have grown. Mm-hmm. That means, does that mean then just the volume of calls have grown too? Mm-hmm. The volume has, of calls has grown as well. But one thing, um, you know, people say, you know, how many calls do you get in field a year? And that kind of defines how successful your scaling out has been. Yeah. And I like to think about scaling as not just purely outwards, but depth. So the depth of the relationships we form with the community can't always be captured by the number of calls we get. Mm. And each call we get can be very long. So we're not a crisis hotline. Some of our calls end up being two hours long. Um, And these are people who are really isolated often and just want another LGBTQ queer person to talk to. Mm. So I think that's very hard to measure by traditional nonprofit metrics. I think we've also grown in terms of the kinds of programs we offer and how we think about and strategize towards queer liberation. So um, some of the programs we run now include the Squish Book Resource Database, allyship trainings, community building events. Um, but we've also started learning a lot about like movements that we, we uh, are part of, like healing justice movements, disability justice, racial justice movements. And I think the way we go about our work has also um, changed a lot and centered more relationship building with black queer folks and also more of a sense of 
place uh, within the St. Louis region, um, more connected to the organizing work that's already happened here. So I feel like some of those, yes, our call volume has increased um, by about 10 times since we first started, but also, you know, we're nowhere near like getting the number of calls that like BHR is getting or like a national hotline is getting. But I think the grassroots connection and role we play is um, like difficult to capture and measure sure. using nonprofit metrics. It's quality, not quantity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That that makes a, a big difference, especially when like you were talking about mm-hmm. the relationship building. Mm-hmm. You can have a bunch of friends mm-hmm. and still feel alone. Mm-hmm. It seems as if Mm -hmm. because of the rising number of legislative bills that have been Mm -hmm. put out there, that have been proposed, that have even passed, Mm -hmm. more people are are realizing Mm -hmm. or maybe even just paying more attention to Mm -hmm. the different realities that queer people Mm -hmm. in this city, in this state, in this Mm -hmm. country Mm -hmm. are experiencing Mm -hmm. and how... Like even like what you just said earlier about the relationships and mm-hmm. feeling lonely, mm-hmm. there are probably people who are like, "What do you mean? There's gay bars everywhere. How can you feel lonely here?" Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like Squish has kind of evolved with some of the needs as far as like what queer people actually like queer people actually need versus mm-hmm. what the broader like mainstream. Mm culture might think queer people need? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think just like with any other community, the people most at the margins are the people who traditional systems like struggle the most to reach. And so Squish as a single nonprofit is the same, right? Like we um, also struggle to reach people living in rural areas, black and brown folks, trans folks, younger people, incarcerated people, disabled and chronically ill people, deaf and hard of hearing people. There's so many people living with these multiple intersecting marginalized identities and experiences. I think Squish has like gone, made some progress over the past couple of years, especially when it comes to creating safer conditions for disabled and chronically ill queer people to engage with our programs. So really investing in how do we make hybrid and virtual programming um, engaging and successful? How do we make sure that chronically ill and disabled people are not left behind as people think that the pandemic is over? Mm. Um, we also you know, recognize that there are very serious uh, racial divides in St. Louis and also impacting racism, impacting black and brown queer folks in St. Louis. So how do we create um, safer spaces through trusting relationships that takes a very long time? Um, so I think we see a lot that black and brown queer people are often like also marginalized and like uh, more invisible within queer community. So when it comes to building or connecting folks to community, what Mm. does that look like in practice? Mm. I think community is often a romanticized concept. And so you hear people say that I want to be in community or I love my community or my community's got my back. But what we see, and we we learn a lot, there's a group called the Bay Area for Transformative Justice. Um, um, And one of the things they found through their uh, pod mapping work 
is that they found that most people say they have a community, but when asked to actually name people who have their back, who they can go to when problems come up, or they can go to for emotional and tangible support, most people can only name two to three people. Mm. When I read this, I was like a little called out. I was like, yeah, I can also only name two or three people. And so I think what that points to is community is not a like pie in the sky concept. It takes a lot of work and energy to maintain Um, relationships where there are people in our lives that we can call on to help us when we're in trouble, that we can be vulnerable around. And it's not something that only queer community needs, but it's something that marginalized communities like queer communities often um, have less of. Yeah. And so when we think about how to create community, oftentimes we find that tapping on relationships people already have and figuring out how to strengthen them and how to bring people to a place of shared values and radically open and honest communication is much more effective than trying to bring strangers together and um, you know forge superficial connections that might not last past the event that we're hosting yeah. so and and you know organizations sometimes where we play very limited roles you know like we're not in people's day-to-day lives we can't uh, promote like, Uh, supportive conversations among people and I think a lot of this means that community members and organizations have to work together to create the kind of communities we want to see because they all start with these one-on-one relationships it's not like we can just like uh, create a community out of people who don't know each other or who are not already connected so that's something I learned from the community work we've done is that like community building work is often put on a pedestal or romanticized, like, wow, we're creating these amazing connections between people. But the reality is we can only build where there is fertile soil. And so if people already have these relationships, all we can do is try and create more space for people to come together, more public space, more safe spaces. But people um, have to do their own work to, to connect. And, you know, we can share political tools. We can create workshops on transformative justice. We can... Um, create spaces where there's a ready-made container, but people have to walk into the container. And, and, and it's like a lot of work, it's very long-term. That was Luca Kai, Executive Director of the St. Louis Queer Support Helpline, or SQUISH. They were discussing the challenging yet rewarding work of community building for and among queer St. Louisans. We need to take a quick break, but we'll hear more of this conversation about Squish, including how hyper-trans visibility can be a double-edged sword. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Let's get back to the conversation between Luca Kai, Executive Director of St. Louis Queer Support Helpline, also known as Squish, and producer Maya Norfleet. You mentioned like some of the things that you've learned mm-hmm. in this work. What are some some of those other lessons that mm-hmm. only during the practice of mm-hmm. you know having a helpline, connecting mm-hmm. people to resources, mm-hmm. just just listening to people talk mm. about what they need or mm. dream of or would love to have. Mm. What else have y'all or, you know, has Squish learned? Mm. I think one that um, often our programs are a bit of a banded solution. 
So, you know, we're able to provide emotional support in a phone call. We're able to provide connections or information to about resources, or we can maybe convene a group of people to talk about LGBTQ topics for the first time in their neighborhood or their community. Um, but oftentimes the systems that make it life difficult for people in our community are all very intersectional, they're interwoven, and it's very hard to take them down. So I think thinking about this work long-term is really important, getting people to invest in the St. Louis region and staying here. A lot of trans people and queer people are leaving and moving because this is not a good place for them to stay. And that make I feel both like that's very understandable, especially for trans youth and their families, um, but it's also very sad. I think it's very tragic, um, and we need people to be able to be invest in the region and in the work long term. We need this to be sustainable and resourced work. Um, we need philanthropy to shift to better value community-based grassroots work and LGBTQ issue area work. Um, and also to see all of the issues that as, as intersectional. So like our work cannot you know, uh, exist on its own without reproductive justice work or racial justice work um, or um, anti-capitalist work. So um, yeah, it's like both we this work is both really hard and also needs to be much more sustainable and requires much more collaboration and systems-based thinking than I, we initially expected. Connecting across lived experience and across privileged and marginalized identities is really difficult. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we see in our community, um, and it creates a lot of conflict, resentment, and also um, lack of like power dynamics that need, need to shift are being shifted because of like it's I think it's really common to see people um, experience feelings of defensiveness guilt um, when confronted with privilege myself included mm. and um, I really admire some of the work that organizations like NCCJ and Forward Through Ferguson are doing to create spaces where people can communicate across privilege and marginalization um, and, and one, one thing I've seen that is sort of discouraging is I think uh, when a community member's experience is so mar so so like drastically different, every aspect of their life um, is different from um, like a privileged, more privileged person trying to understand their experience. It just takes so much exhaustion mm -hmm. and having to explain things over and over again. It takes a lot to communicate the entirety of someone's experience, um, but. We also see on a more hopeful end um, that when people have empathy, have relationships with marginalized community members, genuine mutually beneficial relationships, and a genuine desire to um, learn across difference, that people with more privilege have also shown up in ways that are supportive. So mm -hmm. like, um, you know, being humble, listening, being active about shifting power and resources, um, forming relationships where, you know, in a society that can be very fragmented, usually relationships across social identity are rare. It's like more more rare than relationships with people who share your social identities. Right. So we do see that it can happen, and um, it can be very transformative. I think because ideally, coalition work and movement work is, you know, cross racial. It's multiracial. It's multi identity, multi gender. Um, so, yeah, I wish more people were bought into doing this kind of work. And also, I think capitalism makes it difficult to have energy um, and time for people who uh, might be having it worse. It seems like you have a problem with capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it would be great if you can kind mm-hmm. of explain what mm-hmm. capitalism has to do mm-hmm. with queerness and queer liberation and queer identity. Mm-hmm. Great question. And I'm not an expert on this, so this is just... I'm not expecting you to <laughs> be. I'm asking yeah. you. So I think, I think what I've seen in my work is that um, part of the philosophy of capitalism centers profit over people. And so that gives businesses, corporations, organizations, sometimes even nonprofits, um, the incentive to grow bigger and bigger without uh, considering what other factors are valuable to consider in the process. So mm-hmm. prioritizing profit over things like sustainability, climate justice, people's energy. Um, or even like a sense of belonging. Sense of belonging, community. Um, and so, you know, that affects everyone and it affects marginalized communities who already have least access to resources. Um, It also makes it very difficult for us to invest in long-term work because it's not profitable. So work that takes a long time, like like building a neighborhood of people who care about each other Mm. or caring about um, people who are aging but are no longer able to work under capitalism so they're not producing profit um, or Or something Or people not old enough to work. Exactly, younger people as well. Um, And so under capitalism, I think people with the most earning power or the, uh, the power to control resources for the sake of profit, um, you know, like large corporations, people leading large corporations, um, are, are they benefit from the system. And then the people least able to contribute to profit, some of the most marginalized people, disabled people, queer and trans people, there's even, you know, the logic of like, um, capitalism also impacts the way that governments and societies think about uh, how much we should reproduce. Like the more you can reproduce, the more people are generated for labor under capitalism. And you, when you say reproduce, you're talking about like reproducing, mm-hmm. like sexually, like, yeah, like other humans. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, under capitalism, like queer and trans people are not profitable. Like we, many of us, like don't reproduce in cisgender heterosexual ways. Um, you know, many of us, a lot of, there's a large intersection between trans people and neurodivergent people and also disabled people. So it's very hard to be productive um, mm. when there are all of those layers of marginalization. Uh, and so I think the core idea I'm trying to convey here is like, it's difficult to center social justice when the economic system centers profit, um, which is social justice is often very not profitable. Yeah, <laughs> but the, the if to put it in economic terms, mm. the profit is what like, if the point isn't to make more money, it's mm-hmm. not profitable and you know that, mm-hmm. what are we gaining mm-hmm. by having such uh, programs and resources like Squish? Mm-hmm. I think we gain uh, more sustainable and joyful communities to live in. I think we gain more justice and the sense that we're doing the right thing um, for, for the society we live in. I think we gain a sense of full participation from everyone in, in our community. Um, especially those most marginalized. I think we gain a sense of everyone's full humanity. Um, you know, we're not seeing each other through the lens of stereotypes or um, like myths uh, or flattened understandings of each other. Mm-hmm. And I think there will be more time, space, and re- energy for um, things we joyfully like to do together. Um, and I think that will benefit everyone, not just quick communities. The legislation that has been 
focused, mm-hmm. maybe some people might can even say targeted towards trans people, and I'm talking like children and adults, mm-hmm. remains a huge talking point, mm-hmm. um, even though the legislature states session is mm-hmm. over. There's, there's a lot still to be said, and we're still seeing some of the repercussions of s- those bills mm-hmm. or even of the conversations being had mm-hmm. in the Capitol. Mm-hmm. What are the types of concerns that people are sharing with you with Squish mm-hmm. and how does Squish hope to help and what they need? Yeah. This is where this is an example where visibility or hyper visibility of our community is a double edged sword. So, you know, for for many years the mainstream LGBT movement has asked for more visibility for LGBTQ people from like having Pride Month parades, um, asking to be seen and to be heard. But I think uh, what's really unfortunate is I think is a politicization of trans people's bodies, lives in ways that you know, are very can be very invading of individual trans people's privacy. Um, trans people's right to gender affirming health care, I think, is something that I am very passionate about and our community is very passionate about. But to be for it to be under such a national spotlight and to be, you know, we've received a lot of um, hateful rhetoric and a lot of oftentimes it's like over social media or on platforms where it's difficult to have. Uh, transformative or, or engaging dialogue. Mm. And so under the this kind of um, really politicized atmosphere, I think it has created a lot of fear, insecurity, um, anxiety, uh, and you know people calling being really scared about the social political climate. We see queer and trans people and families leaving the state if they have the resources um, or feeling heightened sense of danger um, from the people around them, not being sure who is supportive. And I think even people in the middle about trans issues um, have been impacted by, uh, I would say, a lot of the misinformation. Um, For example, Jamie Reed's affidavit about the WashU Trans Center, Mm. um, I think contains a lot of myths around um, the amount of autonomy trans youth have and the amount of, there's so much, there's so many safety checks and balances that go into gender affirming healthcare already that honestly already make it pretty onerous and onerous process. It's it's already difficult to get through all the red tape. It takes months and months for someone to even um, be able to access hormones um, and much less gender affirming surgery. Um, I will say for me that uh, gender affirming healthcare has saved my life. Um, and so being able to be on hormones and to be able to see a gender affirming healthcare provider at Southampton has um, been one of the biggest reasons why I am lucky to be here and also lucky to be in St. Louis. Um, mm-hmm. St. Louis is a community I care a lot about, and part of that is the grassroots network of healthcare providers, community organizers, and community members who work together to try and continue access to gender-affirming healthcare for our community. Um, so in short, I would say I think it's really unfair and it w- it's very intentional that this issue is being used um, as a political pawn for anti-trans politicians to be able to win votes and able to push this issue along in the capital. Um, and it really shouldn't be when there are so many other pressing social issues that are, everyone faces. That was Luca Kai, executive director of the St. Louis Queer Support Helpline, speaking with producer Maya Norfleet. For more information about the helpline, visit thesquish.org. 
That's T-H-E-S-Q-S-H dot org. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Maya Norfley. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.